What effect does public procurement law have on fintech? Before going into our discussion, it's useful to know what fintech or financial technology is. The thesis that I hope to convince you of during this presentation is that the way that fintech law is structured right now is that it will probably lead to a free-for-all not only between companies domestically, but also between companies and governments internationally. So let's look first at fintech. By fintech, we basically mean those distributed ledger technologies, which include blockchains, anything that can record in a satisfactory way a transaction. And undoubtedly, you've seen definitions of satisfactory way, meaning no double spending, meaning security, etc. So we don't go into that at all. Beside distributed ledger technology, fintech has the possibility of using smart contracts in the future, which you can look up in the paper, and promote the use of tokenization or the transfer of asset and obligation rights through electronic media. Looking at this kind of fintech and the way these technologies have to disintermediate uh, government and non-government activities as we know them now, let's look at kind of a typical complicated procurement. A procurement consists of numerous stages uh, with numerous actors. Each of these spaces requires, of course, their own documents and pages to be filled in. But also, if you notice, in a lot of these nexes, a lot of these points, there is a place for finance. So there's either the cost of procuring the goods, there's the cost of assembling a tender. You can almost see each step of a procurement and each of the actors in this great big tree of what was later become known as decentralized autonomous organizations. You can almost see these as financing hubs. And the financing hubs then either come together in the under the aegis of one large organization like Morgan Stanley, or they're all disintermediated. You'll have a trade finance company deal with uh, one particular aspect, maybe the transfer of goods from Miami to California by ship, or transferring uh, the title indeed to particular government assets in case of uh, sale, for example. So looking more deeply, though, at fintech and the effect that it will have on public procurement, you can think of anyone as basically sitting between government and business. So fintech promises to re-intermediate that relationship between government and business. If we've thought of capitalism before as the way of allocating resources toward either public ends or private ends through intermediaries, banks, then what happens when the banks disappear? And so if we look at each of these little financing nexes, what happens when they can all be done by the agents themselves? 
what happens when the institutions of capitalism no longer require the institutions. And so, of course, this leads to lower transaction costs and leads to a complete disintermediation, meaning that this distinction between government and business becomes less relevant and important in itself, doesn't it? Because if you're funding a swimming pool, for example, it doesn't necessarily matter whether you raise taxes or you just ask every member to contribute. It's basically, at its heart, just the same nexus of, of contracts. What is different about fintech, though, is this idea of a common platform, is, is that there's some eBay-type place that everyone goes to. There's some kind of web portal where I can lend you some money for the day, or you can uh, transfer the tokenized rights to me over your car. And so it's that kind of one-stop shop. It's that one place that can handle this entire string of transactions that used to make up the procurement. And it's this platform which manages sometimes hundreds of contractors, subcontractors, and so forth. That's what makes this kind of fintech technology and the underlying nexus of contracts so very different than the, the capitalism that we used to know. What you've got to keep it in mind when thinking about fintech and thinking about public procurement is what is known as the contracting authority. That is the government body that's buying goods, services, and works. It's buying stuff, right? So scattered all throughout the public sector, there are these institutions that nominally, to greater or lesser effect, have to follow the rules of purchase that are laid down in law. They're often laid down in some kind of central buying authority's rules and in their own rules as well. So you can think of these contracting authorities as the, the heart of public procurement, thousands of little hearts beating, arranging the things that we need and use in daily life. And from a legal point of view, then, there's four kind of trade-offs that have to be made when thinking about how to regulate these things in this new platform world. If before we could think about the trade-off between rules and discretion, where each individual agency would have to follow some kind of certain minimum of rules subject to discretion, which maximizes public welfare. I mean, we can all agree that government purchases and government activity in general should maximize social welfare as defined in some way. But having this platform leads to the possibility of reducing discretion, fixing discretion in some way, or even transferring discretion to parties that before never had such discretion. It's entirely possible for a city to vote completely on whether they want a bullfighting rink or if they want a fountain, for example, something that was formerly delegated. Now people can direct their resources much more directly. The second trade-off is 
the extent to which each of these contracting authorities, each of these government bodies, rep- represents a utility or whether they represent competitors. Um, so if we're looking at a financing company that will carry the costs of my tender preparation, is that a public utility that all of us can use in order to make our bids cheaper, easier, better, and so forth? Or are we forcing onto a platform everyone to use that particular quote-unquote public good, despite the fact that there could be competition amongst various online service providers, thereby potentially increasing public welfare? And we just won't know that. We'll never see it. That's that's an area of this trade-off, which you can't see until you see it, as it were. The third uh, trade-off, kind of legal theory trade-off, then, is the extent to which one discloses rules, discloses particular bid information for the good of the public or the good of the uh, participating bodies versus uh, access to remedies. I can't know that someone's cheated unless there's enough transparency for me to observe that collusion has occurred or that the uh, contracting authority has uh, agreed just to look the other way with regards to a deadline. And so getting that trade-off in a platform, right, where you have discretion and you have a potential public utility operating at the same time, it's not clear where that line of demarcation finally falls. Finally, the the fourth kind of demarcation battle in this new platform economy of fintech in public procurement lies at whether a fintech in public procurement is simply an administrative service or whether it's a policy objective in itself. Remember that the promotion of national innovation, the promotion of even fintech as a 21st century technology has been stated by probably at this point most governments as a technological policy objective. It's not just a way of doing things. It's not just a stapler or a pencil or something used in in office life. It, it's an actual aim in itself. But on the other hand, it is like a stapler. I mean, something which helps you reduce the costs of preparing a tender or involving sub, uh, doing background research on potential subcontractors. Uh, those things are, they're big, boy, they're good old boring, bureaucratic, basic cost office stuff, right? So to what extent does the development of a fintech-enabled public procurement does that promote a policy objective, or is it just like e-procurement? Those are some of the, the legal lines of demarcation. But sitting on top of that, you have governments actively trying to promote a fintech and the development of fintech in public procurement, but more generally, they're using public procurement as a means of promoting fintech. So it's not just the good old case where, uh, you know, innovators of a country have put stuff online and it's made public procurement cheaper. 
No. In fact, what countries are doing is that they're competing against each other by putting out to tender to local companies the possibility to develop fintech applications, some of those which are targeted toward making public procurement better, cheaper, etc. So to that extent, we're not just looking at the fintech of public procurement, we're looking at the public procurement of fintech. And in the paper, we talk uh, a little bit about the international organizations, which have been pushing this for some strange reason. Um, it's not clear who's motivating them to do this. It's certainly not a level playing field. We talk about uh, LB Chain, uh, Lithuania's big push to using blockchains in order to try and make their government better in some way. And if you scratch deep enough at any of these uh, programs, you find that it's a lot of blah, 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 but not a lot of results. And so as of the end of 2010, we still see a lot of hype. We still see a lot of supposed results. But when you actually do the research, nothing's been done. And you often have to go four or five levels down, right? So the minister announces, oh, yes, we're, you know, we've successfully rolled out this uh, LB chain with a local partner. And you go to the local partner and the local partner says, yes, we've successfully rolled out this and you go to the programmer in charge of the project and you find out, well, they're, they're not using it for anything and the, the project hasn't done anything. And so anyone looking at fintech operating anywhere, but particularly in the public sector, needs to have a very cautious eye when looking at the actual results of fintech for public procurement or for anything else. So what we have is these contracting authorities, thousands of them, hundreds of thousands, if we're looking at a space like the EU, and there's no real rules yet as to what they can do other than, of course, Directive 2425-2014, uh, uh, if we're talking the EU, there's some other directives related to transport, related to boats on rivers and Beyond that, contracting authorities have a certain leeway and a certain way of organizing their own tenders. Even now, it's a free-for-all. When we're talking about something that becomes like eBay, very much becomes a free-for-all. It very much becomes a possibility that one particular ministry, uh, the Ministry of Finance in particular, can overwhelm, completely dominate the conversation about how both fintech and public procurement should evolve. And uh, we point to the central bank and to the Ministry of Finance in particular, because that's where all the action in fintech is. When people say fintech, it's automatically a central bank question. It's all, Sometimes it's a Ministry of Finance question. But people fail to realize it, it's a cross-cutting issue. It's an innovation issue. It involves all ministries. It involves, if it involves public procurement, then it's clearly not a central bank issue. Central bank doesn't oversee or regulate public procurement. Yet, that's often where the authority and the work for fintech lie, 
erroneously, in our opinion. So we have a domestic free-for-all. We have an international free-for-all, which we'll talk about in a little bit, but there's several ways of dealing with this potential free-for-all. The first way, of course, is to fight fire with fire, is to say, well, if we have a decentralized fintech for public procurement with each government entity organizing its own fintech around its public procurement, then why aren't they also responsible for having a decentralized supervisory technologies or other types of automated processes and overseeing the potential risks of them basically creating their own public procurement regimes? And that's been often flouted as one cure for this potential free-for-all. In the paper, we argue that this is impossible and extremely costly, and it's not the way forward. Uh, we argue for something akin to a fintech law, something operating at the legislative level, which is focused on public procurement and rethinking how public procurement works in the face of these enormous decreasing cost to scale to the completely different economics of government production than we've seen in the past. And we kind of draw out how the central bank, how the procurement authority, how everyone in government should be involved in the creation of these rules rather than just saying, okay, central bank, this is your baby, go with it. That would be both a missed opportunity and probably an excessive concentration of power uh, as far as we're concerned. So that's kind of the first half of the papers. First of all, going over what are the legal issues in public procurement law? How might fintech interact with those legal issues, that demarcation war that, that I was previously talking about, and talking about this free-for-all happening domestically as each contracting authority might very well compete with other contracting authorities. God knows that we've seen government agencies compete with other government agencies before, both politically, economically, and socially. So that's kind of the first half of the paper, is arguing against the use of public procurement as a way of developing public procurement, which sounds circular and ironic, but that's what's happening now. And one of the main reasons why we argue against that is we're killing off anything that we would see in the future. There could be some amazing future a fintech for public procurement solution, which we can't see because we've been putting out to tender things based on existing technology and having the largest competitor basically win. And that's the end of that. And we're locked into that potentially forever as the next section discusses. Um, the next section looks at the international regime for public procurement law and the way that fintech might affect that law. The two major uh, international agreements on public procurement are the GPA, the General Agreement on Procurement, and the UNCITRAL rules governing public procurement, which most governments have adopted al almost completely. 
So when we talk about the Uncitral rules, it's kind of like talking about the universal rules of procurement, barring the big players, the US, the EU, China, Japan, and everyone else. So it applies to those, it applies to, except when it doesn't apply. And combined with that, we'll never see fintech having any real effect on this, the current public procurement regime, until we see liberalization of financial services under something like a GATS, or a general agreement, or some kind of liberalization of the trade in services. And the way it looks right now is that we're not going to see any movement on either of those. We argue that's a problem because there is a dominant player who's going to set the rules if we just let the status quo continue as it is, Uh, specifically China. China's Belt and Road Initiative basically applies Chinese public procurement law to, what is it, 23 countries outside and encourages the adoption of those rules in those countries. Some might say even to the detriment of the Uncitral rules, though that's up for debate. In the same way that people have been crying and arguing about the extent to which the multilateral development bank procurement rules have somehow infiltrated the development of public procurement rules nationally in developing economies. It's very much an open question, but it's a closed question to the extent that the Belt and Road policy, it's not even a policy, it's, it's a name, it's an umbrella, with the extent to which this Belt and Road thing is diverting enough resources in order to affect the way public procurement evolves globally. Now, that in itself wouldn't be such a big problem, but China also dominates the financial side of this equation, which is the the online payment space. We're looking at Alipay, we're looking at uh, Ant, Tencent, we're looking at companies that we don't even know about for reasons of national security. And what we see is that these finance companies who often finance the purchases of their own goods on their own websites across borders have the the very real potential to completely dominate international payments. In despite of any kind of international agreement on trade and financial services and so forth. So China gets kind of the the double win, right? They get the Belt and Road, which gives them, quote-unquote, control over the public procurement rules, and they get the uh, online finance piece, which gives them control over payment of any government goods and services. So one might see China then as the de facto provider of rules in the cross-border procurement space. Internationally, it's not certain whether that's a good thing or not. China, like every other country, acts according to its own raison d'etat. And in the paper, what we recommend is the development of an international public procurement authority. It's amazing. Most uh, most international issues have their own secretariats or bodies. You have a World Customs Organization, some kind of World Railroad Organization, 
uh, electricity organizations, certainly chemicals and chemical safety. There's, there's international organizations governing almost everything except public procurement. Okay, you have a general agreement on procurement under the GATT, but there's no dedicated secretariat to kind of looking after public procurement internationally. It's kind of been an appendage to the GATT. And, and you can see it. I mean, some of its analytical work is very good, but clearly under-resourced and clearly not having access to the kinds of information that something like a IMF for international public procurement might have. So the creation of such an international body would not only prevent the monopolization of an international public procurement regime by a large country, it could be China, it could be the U.S., it could be the EU, um, but also it would give a renewed impetus to creating an international order which would lower costs, increase trade, and continue the original lofty goals set forth in 1947 a long time ago that's been stalled. Uh, with the creation of this International Public Procurement Authority at the international level, and with the supercharging of national purchasing bodies or public procurement authorities at the national level, those two fixes should hopefully solve this free-for-all problem that we identify in the paper. And failing to do that, what we'll see is just a mess of fintech solutions. We'll see a mess of loopholes around uh, procurement. We'll probably see countries look inward rather than outward as they try and create their own domestic platforms and race to be the biggest and best fastest and international welfare decreasing.